Florida, we have a problem. All right, sorry about that. We, we've got so many people here that I think we are, we are uh, kind of melting the server. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Patricia Murphy, one of the political insiders here at the AJC. Greg Bluestein is traveling with Governor Kemp in Israel. So joining me today on today's episode is political insider Tia Mitchell from Washington. Tia, thanks so much for being here. You're the co-host today. Thanks so much for doing this. So glad to be back on the Politically Georgia podcast. We absolutely love having you. We're going to lean heavily on your experience covering Washington and a lot of Washington players we're going to be talking about today. Well, coming up on today's episode, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has a failure to launch his presidential campaign in a botched Twitter Spaces event. Can he recover? Senator Tim Scott gets his campaign off to a smoother start. An explanation of the debt limit and why it's so hard to determine X day Marjorie Taylor Greene asks for decorum in the House, and of course, our who's up and who's down. If this is your first time listening to the Politically Georgia podcast, welcome. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean Breeze. Tropical Beach. Pina Colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And we're back on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Well, Tia, I'm so glad you're here. We have so much to talk about, starting with the presidential contest, which is really, really heating up. We're only in 2023, but 2024 kind of feels like it's getting closer every day. And we have to start with Governor Ron DeSantis and his Twitter Spaces experience. What did you think when you saw it? I thought that the Twitter spaces was way too niche. And I say that as someone who's very much online and is a pretty active Twitter user. But because it was held in a space that, let's be frank, most people aren't on Twitter, although it is a spot for political junkies, it's a spot for journalists, it's a spot for people who want to follow politicians and journalists. So it might be a place where a lot of our listeners are on Twitter, but I would say that like a majority of regular folks are not on Twitter. And so to win president, you've got to have broad appeal. And that's what usually presidential launches are about. And we'll get to Tim Scott in a little bit. But when you go to a place that's very niche I felt like the conversation, therefore, was very niche. And yes, Ron DeSantis went over, you know, all the red meat and a lot of his 
kind of the pillars of what would become his campaign. But to me, he was speaking to a very specific, almost tech bro-y audience. And so, again, it didn't seem like a conversation that had very broad appeal. Yeah. And, you know, maybe he was just speaking to Elon Musk and David Sachs, who is a uh, DeSantis mega donor. They were the two uh, gentlemen interviewing Ron DeSantis. So I'm going to set the scene a little bit to launch his presidential campaign. Ron DeSantis decided to forego the traditional launch of either a rally or a kind of a structured speech the way other candidates had. He didn't do a video the way uh, President Joe Biden has decided to do it. Instead, he did it, as you said, Tia, on this Twitter Spaces event, that's a live platform, although there was no video, it was just audio on Wednesday night. And for those of you who didn't hear it, um, it started off with just about 15, 20 minutes of dead air. Then there was some crosstalk. You could hear some people talking about, are we online yet? I, I think this is working. Thanks for bearing with us. Um, and then eventually, uh, Ron DeSantis did get on. <laughs> he did get on the line. And um, here's a little bit of audio of what we heard. And then here is audio once we finally did start to hear from Ron DeSantis. There is no substitute for victory. We must end the culture of losing that has infected the Republican Party in recent years. The tired dogmas of the past are inadequate for a vibrant future. We must look forward, not backwards. Okay, and so there we hear Ron DeSantis talking about the kind of president that he's going to be. He's trying to project an air, obviously, of strength and competence. I think that was a bit stepped on by the entire experience of trying to hear him. He was in and out for me. I couldn't hear him a lot of the time. Um, But to your point, Tia, when he was talking, he was delivering a more traditional Republican message. Also, Elon Musk was uh, sort of uh, interjecting uh, how important free speech is and saying that this was a great Twitter moment for free speech. Uh, That was um, a little bit of the tension as well. We're trying to decide, are we watching Ron DeSantis launch his campaign? Are we watching Elon Musk launch his campaign to be the public square, be the true public square? Um, What it ended up being was a bit of a public embarrassment just for his campaign. Um, But I think it raises a couple of questions when Ron DeSantis decided to launch his campaign in this way. Um, First of all, can you just totally bypass traditional media as a Republican candidate right now? I believe, and I'm, I'm actually sure because I've spoken with journalists down in Florida who said they have very little access to Ron DeSantis. They're not able to talk to him directly. He, just like Donald Trump, has uh, worked to sort of sideline the press and go straight to voters. He doesn't have those huge rallies, though. And so this is his attempt, I think, to get straight to, I guess, at least to an audience. It was only about 500,000 people, um, just a fraction of who we saw uh, watching even that CNN town hall with Donald Trump. Um, But Tia, how is DeSantis's relationship with the media? Because I know you've covered Florida politics. That's where you were before you came to Georgia. Yeah, it's interesting. I just was in Florida for um, Sine Die, the last day of the Florida legislative session. And even then, I, I didn't cover Ron DeSantis when he was governor. I covered him just a little bit when he was in Congress. So that was my first time kind of being able to see Governor DeSantis up close in person. 
And during the, in Florida, there is a kind of sine die tradition where the leader of the House and the leader of the Senate and usually the governor come together to close out the legislative session. And it's a very cheerful kind of, again, just kind of a a pomp and circumstance, fun way to end the session. Ron DeSantis didn't show up. But what he did was 20 minutes later, he held a closed door news conference in the basement of the Florida Capitol. And um, yes, media were let in, but we were put in the back of the room behind ropes. And then, you know, he did answer some questions, but you literally couldn't get close to the governor. It was very controlled. A lot of the general public who came again to kind of witness the pomp and circumstance of Sine Die in Florida, they never got to see the governor. And people commented that, like, it's just another example of how he insulates himself, not only from the media in certain ways, but from uh, average Floridians. Now, apparently part of the reason why he did that was because last year there were protests against Ron DeSantis at Sine Die over some of the legislation he had championed. And there were some people, you know, who behaved a little badly through paper. Um, but instead of kind of trusting that that could be controlled or taking a risk, he decided to avoid the potential exposure for further embarrassment. And I think that's the conversation is like he's risk adverse and he doesn't think the media is going to treat him fairly and he doesn't want to get heckled or um, confronted by people who don't agree with his politics. But how can you do that and run for president of the United States of America? Um, He might be able to do it through a primary, but I think his opponents are going to say, What kind of general election candidate would that make him? So it's going to become an attack line that he'll face throughout primary season. Okay, you know, and it's interesting, though, I think with some conservative voters, they don't mind if uh, if these candidates skip their hometown newspapers and um, network TV, as long as they're sort of getting to see them on social media and in these more conservative platforms. He just needs to sort of work out the kinks, (laughs) obviously. Um, When we did hear from DeSantis on substance and he did get to substance and it was uh, conservative as we expected. He talked quite a bit about COVID, the decisions he made during COVID to open the state up. He actually opened it up after Brian Kemp, but still ahead of um, kind of the national recommendations. Um, We heard from him about abortion. He has signed that six-week abortion ban down in Florida, very similar to Georgia's six-week abortion ban. Um, He has talked about education. He's had that big fight with Disney about um, kind of their own own sort of special tax uh, situation down there. Um, And he's talked about constitutional carry, uh, lifting restrictions on gun owners uh, so that they can carry those guns without having a permit from the state. So a pretty, um, pretty bread and butter conservative uh, substance once you get to the bottom of that. Um, I think the question is coming out of this, I I think, of course, his campaign can recover from this. A number of reporters I spoke with who are national reporters said they talked to people who had no idea that he was going to be on Twitter. So they had no idea that they wasn't that he wasn't uh, functional on Twitter and they don't even have Twitter. So what do they care? They really don't care. I think it's going to matter. Can he run a competent campaign to you? Right. So a lot of people who are reading into the technical difficulties on Twitter read into it, not so much that 
you know, all these people were waiting. Although we should point out that once the feed did, they went to a new feed and it did work better, but they lost a big chunk of their initial audience, um, which led to the criticism. But I think a lot of people who were criticizing Governor DeSantis, not so much about the fact that not being able to reach people on Twitter, but was it indicative of, of you know, a, a campaign that's not ready for prime time that didn't really think through this launch and the technical needs to be able to execute it well. And that could bode poorly. At the end of the day, campaigns are operations. And when they aren't managed well, that affects the ability of a candidate to be successful. And we've seen that Kamala Harris's campaign struggled in part because behind the scenes, it was a little bit of a mess at times. It's not end all be all, but it's one of the many factors to a candidate's success. And that's why, again, we can't read too much into it, but we can't dismiss it either. Okay, so now let's compare that to Senator Tim Scott's announcement. I think we are we kind of go from new age, uh, not a disaster, but sort of a very, very clunky launch from Ron DeSantis to a much more traditional but extremely smooth launch from uh, South Carolina's Senator Tim Scott. Tim Scott has been in the Senate for 10 years since Governor Nikki Haley, then Governor Nikki Haley, appointed him to the Senate. He's since won statewide twice. He's the second black Republican elected to the U.S. Senate and has uh, just really, I think, forged, at least as long as I was covering up the, him up there, a really, really solid reputation. He is extremely well liked among his fellow senators. So let's open up with a little bit of the audio that we heard from Tim Scott on Monday. That's the evolution of the country we live in. My family went from cotton to Congress in his lifetime. <laughs> And it was, only, it was only possible because my grandfather had a stubborn faith. Faith in God, faith in himself, and faith in what America would be. He looked beyond the pain of his present, and he saw the promise of his future. That black man who struggled through the Jim Crow South believed then what some doubt now in the goodness of America. So that's Tim Scott in his own presidential announcement on Monday in North Charleston at the alma mater of North Charleston College, where he went. And to me, Tia, that was kind of how you do it. That was, um, and he was introducing himself to voters at DeSantis actually has a really interesting resume. We heard practically nothing about it <laughs> uh, on his Twitter Spaces event. But Tim Scott talking about being raised by a single mother, talking about having mentors who changed his life and really inspired him, uh, doing the hard work that was required to really move himself along out of uh, failing many subjects to um, really finding his purpose in public service. Um, what did you think about what you heard from Tim Scott? So it's a mixed bag for me for Tim Scott, honestly. So the clip 
that you play, the fact that he worked really hard to play up his personal story, his family ties. He even had his nephew introduce him. I think you're right. That is something that was more traditional. And I think it really worked. It helped people. At the end of the day, Tim Scott doesn't have the highest name recognition. I would argue Ron DeSantis's name recognition is much higher. Mm -hmm. And so Tim Scott understood that he needs to introduce himself to American voters who don't know him or maybe only know that he's a senator and not much else about him. And so in that way, I do think his launch was very effective. And I think that he did what needed to be done. That being said, compared to Ron DeSantis, very smooth. Compared to a Donald Trump rally, a little bit unpolished, to be honest, because he's not as polished of a speaker. And again, he'll probably get better as he hits, continues to hit the campaign trail and and just get more experience. Um, but he's not a, the great orator. Um, he had a, a little technical glitch as well. Nothing, again, on the level of what Ron DeSantis faced. And he also had like a, a whooping moment that kind of went viral that people he made did. fun of, you know, Charleston, you know, so. <laughs> and I, again, Compared to Ron DeSantis, he did amazing, but it was a little unpolished to me. Yeah, he did have a few moments of, it was more Howard Dean than Ron DeSantis. I feel like just a little bit, you know, sometimes it comes out over the loudspeaker a lot different than it does in your head. And you're like, oh, wow, that was a whole lot different than I thought it was, <laughs> than I thought it was going to be. Uh, one thing Tim Scott has going for him is $22 million in the bank. Um, he also had Larry Ellison in the audience, billionaire, uh, who has obviously the deep pockets to essentially fully fund an outside operation if he wanted to. And so I think those were important people for Tim Scott to have there. Um, you know, the real challenge for Tim Scott, as you said, Tia, is his name ID. And then the question for all of these candidates is, can you claw those voters away from Donald Trump? And if not, because those Trump voters are just so incredibly loyal to him, can you convince Republican voters that you're the best alternative to Donald Trump? But all of these uh, candidates so far, or most of them, are trying to do without really going after Trump in any way. We did not hear any mention of Trump from either Senator Scott or DeSantis in either one of their uh, campaigns. They're not uh, uh, taking Donald Trump on head on. They're making some kind of oblique references to poor behavior or people who don't run a good administration, but they're just not going after him. And so I'm not sure where what the emotional pitch is going to be to the voters looking for the anti-Trump or a Trump alternative. Um, now, Governor Kemp figured out a way around that. He was able to keep the Trump voters and also get the non-Trump Republicans and some independents at the same time. But Kemp wasn't running against Donald Trump. So I don't know how you run the Kemp playbook, which we know uh, Mike Pence is planning to do. How do you run the Kemp playbook when you're not running for governor, you're running for president against Donald Trump? Right. And look at Mike Pence is polling in the single digits right now, the former vice president. So I don't think any of the Republican field has made it clear how they plan to carve out a lane against Trump. I think a lot of them have made it clear that they're carving out a lane as a Trump alternative, particularly if Donald Trump is no longer a candidate or particularly if 
something happens and Republican voters start abandoning Donald Trump in droves, neither one of which has happened. And Donald Trump has made it clear that he doesn't think either neither one. He thinks neither one will happen. But so if Trump remains and these folks are going up against Trump, not just as a Trump alternative, you would think that eventually they've got to take Trump on. And that doesn't necessarily mean antagonize Trump, but they've got to say, here's why you pick me over Donald Trump. You've got to name it and be specific. And we have not seen that. Now, Ron DeSantis, he'll take a jab every now and then, but we've also seen him retreat from his jabs. Same thing with Mike Pence. And that to me is the big question mark of this Republican field. Yeah. Okay. We're going to run through a couple of polls really quickly. These are of Georgia Republican primary voters. We have an April poll from the University of Georgia that put Donald Trump at 51%, Ron DeSantis at 30%, which was pretty good, if you ask me, because he was not even close to announcing his candidacy. And then every other candidate, that's Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, Asa Hutchinson, all in the single digits. Um, and the, But the number that really jumped out to me, Tia, in that poll was 7%. Just 7% of GOP voters said they're undecided. So that leaves Donald Trump really in a very, very strong position. Um, either the entire not-Trump field is going to have to coalesce around a single person or Trump's going to run away with this thing. And if it was tomorrow, at least we could say that's exactly what would happen. Now we get to the question of electability and we know that's going to be the argument from a lot of these not Trump voters. I mean, excuse me, not Trump candidates. We had a May public opinion strategies poll. That's a GOP firm here in Georgia of Georgia voters. And it said that Ron DeSantis would defeat Joe Biden 46 to 41, but Donald Trump would lose to Joe Biden again, 42 to 43. Now, Tia, uh, the electability argument did not carry much weight in that Herschel Walker race. We heard from moderate Republicans saying over and over and over, Herschel Walker cannot win that GOP. Uh, He can win the primary, but he's not going to win a general election. And I'll be darned if 68% of Republicans did not buy that argument. And Uh, put Herschel Walker in the GOP nominee seat um, very, very easily with very little question. They just put him right there. And and indeed, he did lose that general election. So electability didn't seem to sway the day with GOP voters last year. Right. And we saw it happen in several races around the nation where these really Trumpy MAGA election deniers easily won their primaries and then did not win in the general election. And a lot of them had Trump's endorsement. So I think your point is well taken that electability alone, particularly polling alone, you know, is just not, it doesn't seem like that's a big factor. I think it moves Democrats more than Republicans. I think Joe Biden is president in part because pragmatic Democrats, particularly black Democrats in the South said, let's go with the guy we think can beat Trump because they put a premium on making sure Trump didn't get a second term more than they said, I want to elect the person that I like the most. We'll see, but it doesn't seem right now that Republicans are motivated as much by keeping Biden from winning a second term as much as a lot of Republican voters are motivated by the return of Donald Trump. 
And until that narrative changes, I don't think the electability argument will seem to have much impact. But there are a lot of factors where, you know, we're so early. I think if Ron DeSantis pivots a little bit to more traditional campaigning, including his family, which is very photogenic and cute and and, you know, all American and shows off his youth, which is a, a quite frankly, a big contrast to both Trump and Biden. Maybe that will start influencing Republican voters to say, hmm, let's let's think about this guy, because there are some upsides there. But even Ron DeSantis isn't making that his primary argument right now. I'm with you, Tia. I think the more we see of his family, the better. And maybe he'll take your advice. We'll see. Um, But for the time being, this is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze. Tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And we're back with Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Well, we think the Morning Jolt newsletter, which Tia, Greg, and I write every morning, sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You can join the community now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts and get six months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com com slash podcasts so you always know what's really going on. And Tia, speaking of what's really going on, what is going on with the debt limit? We are taping this Thursday afternoon. We had an item in the jolt from you earlier this morning talking about this concept of X date, meaning the date that we hit the debt limit and the United States can uh, no longer pay its bills can't get checks in the mail to um, people who are waiting for them, Social Security, veterans benefits, et cetera, um, can't service the debt. Uh, what is going on? So what is going on? As of Thursday evening, House Republicans are still in talks with the White House. There is some, I will say, some indications that they're moving closer to an agreement. But the members of the House are are all traveling home, if not home already. I'm pretty sure those direct flights from D.C. to Atlanta have landed as we speak. So most members of Congress are no longer in Washington. Um, The Senate was out all this week, but it's scheduled to return on Tuesday. The House is out all next week, so they're not scheduled to return until June 5th, um, which Right now, the X date that you mentioned, which is a moving target, but the X date was estimated at June 1. So no matter what, there will not be a debt limit deal by June 1. The question is, 
can the federal government figure out ways to kind of prolong its uh, finances, stretch stretch its money to so that June 1 isn't a hard and fast X date of default. And there are a lot of ways they're doing that. They're delaying payments. They're deferring retirement fund payments. They're even telling federal agencies, like, are there some bills you can just not pay right now? And they're trying to buy some time before they reach that debt limit to give members of Congress and the White House more time to possibly reach a deal and then go through all the hurdles needed to actually pass a bill and get it signed into law. The question, even as they try to prolong the X date, work on a deal. The other question is, will the market start to react? The stock market already this week has been pretty volatile, but there hasn't been an all out panic yet, partially because it does seem like a deal is coming together. But, you know, if Wall Street starts saying, hey, it's getting too far. The U.S. is looking like it's not going to be able to pay its bills, default on its debt, which means it won't be able to pay the interest on its debt, service its debt the way its debt tours are expecting. That is what could cause this financial crisis. Okay, and so for anybody who doesn't have their calendar in front of them, June 1st is next Thursday. Um, We've heard skepticism, and this always happens, but there's a reason this always happens. We've heard skepticism that June 1st is really the deadline. Now, like a lot of procrastinators, everybody in Washington is motivated by deadlines. And so Democrats are saying it's June 1st, it's June 1st, we have to do it by June 1st. Republicans, um, including Representative Andrew Clyde from Georgia, have said, you guys are bluffing. It is not June 1st. It doesn't have to be June 1st. You are creating sort of a false level of pressure. Give us time to get a debt deal going here. And and we're going to go through in just a minute what those options might look like. But Tia, you explained earlier this week to me and to some other people on a radio show why June 1st may or may not be the real date. And it's not a conspiracy or a secret, but there is a reason why it may or may not actually be June 1st. Yeah, it may not be June 1st because it fluctuates depending on the money coming into the federal government and again, the money coming out. So as the federal government makes different decisions about what money is coming out, then they're able to stretch it a little bit. It's just an inexact science. Even all along the June 1st date from Treasury Secretary Yellen was an estimate. We've seen other estimates that have put the date later. Um, Of course, she's saying, listen, this is the estimate, but do we want to really test it? It's not a hard and fast date. It's an estimated date based on the government's ability to pay its bills with the money it has available. Now, one thing, you know, I talked for a long time to Representative Andrew Clyde on Wednesday, and he, number one, he's among the hard right Republicans who really wants the government spending to be cut as part of this any debt limit deal. And he says, you know, he's less worried about what types of cuts the federal government might have to make now in order to avoid a default, because a default only deals with not being able to pay its debts to its debtors. Now, America is constantly taking on debt because the federal government operates at a deficit. We spend more than we expect to come in. 
that has been authorized by Republicans and Democrats for many years. We can, you know, the deficit and the which accumulates into the debt has been caused by things like Trump and Bush era tax cuts. It's been caused by things like defense spending during times of war or after 9-11. It's been caused by things like additional government spending during the coronavirus pandemic, which again was President Trump and President Biden. But a default means we're not paying our debtors. The other things that might come to avoid a default, like not paying people who are expecting social security checks, not paying people who are expecting Medicaid payments. Andrew Clyde is kind of of the thinking that, hey, Biden administration is going to have to do what it has to do, depending on the money it has coming in and let the chips fall where they may. And again, Democrats are really worried about that, saying it could be catastrophic because there are people who depend on that financial assistance. And so that's kind of the other side of all this uncertainty of what could come as the X date nears. And Republicans did manage to pass their own debt ceiling increase along with spending cuts. So they did get that through their their own House GOP caucus and then got it out of the floor as well. So they do have that marker that they've already laid down. And I will say a $31 trillion national debt is from all economists' descriptions, really unsustainable. So it does feel like changes need to happen. What exactly those are going to look like, we will find out. I, I don't know if it'll be a short-term uh, deal to extend it briefly and then have more meaningful discussions, but I think those are the types of things that we are um, going to find out. Um, now, one other thing that happened on the House floor this week, Tia, and it, it made a ton of news Of course, if it's making news, it's probably Marjorie Taylor Greene. And it was. And this was a moment of a bit of irony in some people's eyes when Marjorie Taylor Greene called for order on the House floor. The members are reminded to abide by decorum of the House. There's no way to describe that. You have to hear it for yourself. The House will be in order. This is Marjorie Taylor Greene after earlier this year leading basically a cabal of House members yelling at Joe Biden during the State of the Union address, screaming at him, you're a liar. So, Tia, what happened? So this is kind of debt ceiling adjacent. This was during Wednesday's floor session when... Uh, Steve Scalise, who's the GOP uh, majority leader in the House, announced that members would be going home for the Memorial Day break. And he said, you know, we'll come back if there's a deal, but otherwise we're going to go on home as planned. And um, Democrats immediately reacted and said, why are you leaving without a deal on the table? Democrats do have what's known as a discharge petition to force a vote on a standalone increase of the debt ceiling. And they said, you know, we've got all 213 Democrats have have signed the discharge petition, but we need five Republicans to sign it too in order to have enough signatures to bring it to the floor for a vote. 
And so Democrats said, join with us. Let's get this done, not leave America in the lurch. And we just go home for Memorial Day break. And so Craig Kaplan of C-SPAN kind of compared it to the British House of Commons, because even before the whole Marjorie Taylor Greene part happened, there was a lot of just like yelling and jeering and cheering in ways you don't normally see on the House floor. It's usually much more subdued than that. Honestly, I hadn't seen that much jeering since January 6th, to be honest. I'm trying to think if... I'm trying to think if I've seen anything, you know, maybe the state of the union when people got mad at Marjorie Taylor Greene. But it's rare for that type of demonstration to be held on the House floor of like members really uh, acting in ways that are more appropriate for a football field than what you would normally see in the House floor. And so they were getting a little raucous. And finally, Steve Scalise um, said, you know, I asked for order, which was assembled to the person in the chair to call the house back to order. It's just kind of speak. Robert's rules of order speak for like get get people to calm down. Well, (laughs) it just so happened Marjorie Taylor Greene was presiding at that moment. Uh, What people might not know is when you're low man or woman on the totem pole seniority wise, you have to preside over session. It sounds cool. They all think it's boring. It takes up their time because they got to spend a couple of hours a week doing the kind of the again, the 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 duties of presiding over session. Ossoff and Warnock have to do it in the Senate because they're the low uh, seniority members on that side and Democrats are in control. Marjorie Taylor Greene has to do it in the House because Republicans are in control, but she's lower in seniority. So anyways, she was there. Steve Scalise called for order. We heard the reaction when she said decorum, please. And I think that was it, though. I think it was a lot of members from what some people, journalists who reviewed the video said it wasn't just Democrats laughing at Marjorie Taylor Greene, although I would argue it was mostly Democrats, you know, again, kind of mocking her at the irony of someone who's known to kind of herself shirk those those traditions of decorum. And now in this moment, she's calling for the rest of the house to honor the traditions of decorum. Yes, the shoe is on the other foot or the gavel is in the other hand. Okay, well, while all of this action has been going on here in the United States, Governor Brian Kemp has been leading a trade delegation to Israel for the entire last week. Our own Greg Bluestein has been with the governor, traveling with him and that delegation. And we've got this report from Greg from Israel. So here in Israel, there is a famous saying, make the desert bloom. The southern half of the country is covered by the Negev Desert. And even even some temperate areas would be filled with sand if they weren't constantly irrigated by high-tech agricultural practices. But these days, this Israeli scrubland down here, it's for more than expanding agriculture, and it could hold important lessons for Georgia. Governor Brian Kemp and the rest of the delegation trekked down to the desert oasis of Beersheba, which was once a small Israeli village, now turned into a booming tech hub The Israeli government decreed a decade ago it would be the nation's cyber capital, and thousands of high-tech military and government personnel moved there, along with cutting-edge university researchers. Soon, Fortune 500 companies followed. So why does this all matter to Georgia? 
Well, the state laid out a $100 million plan for a cybersecurity center in Augusta alongside the military's work at Fort Gordon. State leaders have a lot to learn from what Israel did in Beersheba. They were taking plenty of notes. In Israel, Greg Bluestein, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Greg Bluestein will be back on U.S. soil next week. He'll be back on the podcast, Tia. I am so thrilled, not just that you were here to give us all your expertise for the last 45 minutes or so, but that you are still here for our favorite part of the podcast each week. That's right. It's our who's up and who's down, where we decide who's had the best week and the worst week in Georgia politics. Tia, we always like to end on a high note, so we start on the low note. Who is your who's down for the week? I mean, I'm going to have to just state the obvious and say (laughs) Governor DeSantis for that technical difficulty-filled presidential campaign launch. Yes, I'm going to go with you. And I am actually, I'm doing it, I'm doing an adjacent nominee. I'm giving it to Twitter's dwindling IT department of all moments that you would really love for your platform to work. It's when the boss is using it and trying to pump up his own credentials by hosting the first ever presidential campaign kickoff on Twitter. And boy, did it crash like a SpaceX rocket. Tia, who is your who's up? I'm going to go with uh, Southern Company CEO, Chris Womack. He's the new CEO, long tenure with the company, but it's so rare for a person of color to be the chief executive of a Fortune 500 company. And so it's a really big accomplishment. That is a terrific who's up. I had all kinds of people, Democrats and Republicans, texting me that Chris Womack is the real deal. That's what I heard from them a lot. He also has a lot of Hill experience. He worked for a subcommittee on the Hill as staff director and um, also worked for a House member, Leon Panetta, back when he was in the House. So it was a while ago, but I'm sure very valuable experience. I'm sure you'll be seeing him in Washington, Tia. Um, and my who's up for the week is former President Jimmy Carter. I have to give it to him. We heard a report from his grandson, Jason Carter, this week. There was um, kind of a ribbon cutting or an unveiling of some street signs up in Gwinnett County on Jimmy Carter Boulevard to say thank you, President Carter. And Jason Carter, when he was giving his remarks and then in an interview with the AP later, said that Jimmy Carter's doing really well. He went into hospice care three months ago. We all rushed down to Plains expecting the worst. And Jason Carter said they expected the worst as well. Um, But he said that um, uh, he's been seeing visitors. He's been able to see this incredible outpouring of love for him from around the globe. People telling all these stories that nobody had heard before of all the ways that Jimmy Carter had influenced them and um, really improve their lives in a lot of ways. So Jason Carter said it's just an incredible thing to see him seeing all of this outpouring and still able to spend time with the with former First Lady Rosalind Carter and his family. Andrew Young was down a couple of weeks ago, and he said that uh, they had a really good visit. So Jimmy Carter continuing to defy the odds. And uh, Jason Carter said, mark my words, he's turning 99 in October. So we are all hoping to wish Jimmy Carter a happy birthday then as well. 
Well, that's all that we have time for here on the Politically Georgia podcast. Thanks so much for joining us this week. You can find links to all of the stories we talked about in today's episode in the episode summary of the podcast. And you can count on new episodes to come out every Wednesday, every Friday, or whenever big news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com.